This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And Matt, why don't you tell us where you are today and what you're up to? Sure. So actually, I am not that far from Tim these days. This week, I am in Amsterdam where Tim is based, and I am in town in Amsterdam for the global conference of the Institute of Internal Auditors. That was Matt Kelly. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. This week, Matt is speaking at a couple of compliance conferences in Europe, so Compliance Into the Weeds is taking a Euro trip with Matt talking about some of the top issues relating for compliance professionals in the EU. We're thrilled to be joined by compliance man himself, Tim Kashinov-Batarov, who will throw in his perspective as well. I know you'll enjoy this special episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. The award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Matt Kelly for another episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Compliance Man himself. is with us today. So, we are in for a special episode. Tim, first of all, a special welcome to Compliance Into the Weeds. And Matt, why don't you tell us uh, where you are today and what you're up to? Sure. So, actually, I am not that far from Tim these days. This week, I am in Amsterdam, uh, where Tim is based, and I am in town in Amsterdam for the Global Conference of the Institute of Internal Auditors, where there are, I think, about three or 4,000 corporate auditors from around the world who are going to be meeting this week. Although, actually, Tom, what brought me to Europe in the first place was last week, I was invited to speak in Paris at the Circle de la Compliance which is a group of corporate compliance officers in France, and they had an annual compliance meeting every summer that they invited me to. I think you've spoken there as well. There's probably about 130 or 150 people or so there right next to the Eiffel Tower. So that was a thrill. And then since I was in the neighborhood, we decided we would make it a long vacation, and I came over to Amsterdam. So here I am. Well, I've, as you mentioned, I've spoken to the circle. It's a great group, so I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on that. You want to start with um, the circle, maybe what you talked about and what were some of the other topics of those you could understand, uh, <laughs> what you were able to garner from that group. Yes, this was a great group, and I love speaking to them, especially when they spoke to me in English, but a fair bit of their conference was also in French, which I do not speak, but they... They asked me to talk on a couple of different issues. One was artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence will or won't complicate compliance officer's life. Uh, another one was also about the compliance officer's role in diversity and inclusion, where my basic take was that if you want a strong speak-up culture, 
You really also need to think about diversity and inclusion because you won't have a strong speak up culture if some parts of your workforce feel like they have been discriminated against or otherwise are alienated. So diversity and a speak up culture go hand in hand. But then the third thing which intrigued me was they wanted me to talk a bit about corruption in corporate conduct and corporate ethics, specifically in the public sector government agencies and whatnot, which, Tom, I have to admit, I don't know that we talk about that enough in the United States, or when we do talk about ethics and compliance for public agencies, we tend to think in terms of contract compliance, bid rules for public works projects, disclosure requirements. But I don't know that we talk all that much, especially at the national level, just about the need for ethics in government. So I did talk a bit about that. And actually, Tim, I'd be very curious to hear what you think about it as well, because I know that Ukraine and Vladimir Zelensky had made a big push on anti-corruption domestically. It's very important for him now to have clean government. And I know that clean government bidding is a big thing in the United States, but that's not the same as just talking about ethics and public service in the United States. I don't know that we talk about it nearly as much as we should. Matt, thank you for this question. You're absolutely right. In European dimension, and specifically in Ukraine, what we have seen, that there is a very big focus and interest on public procurement. And Ukraine, before the war, did some steps in terms of getting it in automated way, having specific apps deployed, and requesting state-owned companies to do everything in a more advanced IT format. But still, as we know, it's a big challenge for any emerging market. And you're absolutely right saying that for countries like Ukraine, when we're talking about corruption and compliance, first mind, the first thing that comes to the mind of the local compliance practitioner would be public procurement. So this is a very good and correct point. Matt, in, from my side, there is a question. We usually ask this question with Tom to all our guests in our Eurotrip series, if they're not from Europe. Do you see any difference between American compliance and European compliance? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um... I, I do see some of that. And in fact, some of the Parisians I met last week, they had asked me about this. So I do think that a lot of the structure of a corporate compliance program, the way it looks on paper, is very similar. You know, if you talk about an anti-corruption compliance program, you know, what you're required for the UK Bribery Act or for the Sapin de Anti-Corruption Act in France versus the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the United States. Like, they're the same. You know, they, they ask all the same things. Um, but I do also see that, you know, for example, they are much more hesitant or cautious about whistleblower hotlines in Europe. Um, just the last couple of weeks, I was compiling summaries of EU whistleblower protection laws, which largely touch on all the same bases, as we do in the United States, but they are more cautious around anonymous reports. 
And some of the laws in the EU, they just they ignore anonymous reports. They don't say that you should support them. Even though the EU whistleblower directive says you should allow anonymous reports, I know at least two countries, one is the Czech Republic, I think the other is Malta, where they just ignored that and they don't talk about anonymous reports. Um, I can appreciate the cultural sensitivities to why. But, you know, I was also just struck by how the, the Circle de la Compliance, they devoted a whole section to the importance of clean conduct in government agencies and the importance of government agencies having high ethical standards. I don't know that I've ever seen that on the agenda at a big compliance conference in the United States. So, Matt, let me follow up that in a little bit different direction, because uh, I spoke to the circle, I think, in 2017 or 2018. And this was after Sepondu had been passed, but before the Airbus case had uh, become public knowledge. And the compliance professionals I met at the event, very passionate about compliance and very passionate about ethics, they were very pleased that Sapondu had been passed. Uh, the legislation had been passed. They were um, uh, sure what the right word might be. It wasn't exactly that they were whistling in the dark, but they weren't really taken as seriously as U.S. compliance professionals were because we had the FCPA. And so I was wondering if, if you were able to discern after now the Airbus case, a real what I saw was what the French compliance professionals had been saying all along was right. And what happened to Airbus in terms of the financial penalties, the reputational damages, et cetera, all came to pass. Did you get a sense that the compliance professionals in France are seen in either a higher estimation or more integrated directly into corporate processes now? Um, I'm not entirely sure how well integrated the compliance function is into corporate processes and getting invited into the inner councils of setting strategy and business plans. I, I don't know. I mean, the French definitely said that it is better now than it was in the past. Does that automatically mean that it's all good? Probably not, but I'm not sure. Although, it's interesting that you mentioned Airbus because Airbus came up a lot in my conversations because there is a new documentary about the Airbus case that is all over, I think it's Hulu or one of the streaming services in Europe at least, because most of them had seen, claimed to have seen it. I have to admit, I hadn't seen it, and I'm not sure where it is in the United States. Then again, we have so many corporate misconduct, you know, how-to or you know, kind of documentary videos about what's going on that sometimes I lose track of all of them that you could watch. But the Airbus incident and the Airbus documentary in particular keeps this front of mind for a lot of compliance officers and I hope for a lot of business executives. Tom, one thing I would say, and I bet this would also resonate well with Tim too, is you know, when you look at Sapanteur getting passed, when you look at whistleblower protection laws getting passed, whatever their specific details are, and other anti-corruption bills and laws. There's even an anti-corruption law in Italy now. I think it shows compliance officers that the government 
is trying to do something. The government is trying to be an anti-corruption partner. And now you, the corporate compliance officer, can go and point to that to all your other executives and colleagues and co-workers and employees to say, look, see, it is not just the United States doing their own thing and shoving it down our throats. We here in Europe also are taking this more seriously, so we have to do it as well. And if the government isn't enforcing anti-corruption laws, if the government doesn't have anti-corruption laws, if the government isn't cracking down on corruption within its own borders, it's going to be really hard for corporate compliance officers to be taken seriously because it's not like the government cares about it in your country. And if they're not, and employees can see that they're not, why would they listen to you, the compliance officer? And I'm glad to see that dynamic seems to be shifting, not shifting as rapidly enough, not in all the countries we'd like, certainly not in Russia. But, you know, it's at least it's moving in the right direction. I find myself in the position of Alex, your humble narrator, Droog, um, because I'm one of two Americans interviewed for that documentary. And I've talked to people who have seen the documentary in Europe, and they said, my French is very, very bad. So, or, or whoever over overdubbed me. It was very disconcerting to see me speaking, but I haven't seen it yet. So, one... Very unshameless plug for that documentary, but I will also give a shameless plug for this week. I'm running a five-part series on ChatGPT, and so that really gives me an opportunity to talk about it. So check that out on Compliance and AI, a Compliance Podcast Network podcast, but an opportunity to lead into the next question, Matt, about AI and how the French view that, or are they are they really at the beginning are they more advanced than we are here in America around AI or some of the same questions you and I talk about uh, throughout the day with our colleagues or some of the same questions they're asking? Well, I think everybody is at the beginning with AI, and it doesn't make a difference if you are in France or the United States or anywhere else. What is interesting is that when I use ChatGPT specifically, so far the only thing I will really trust it to do is translate posts I have written into other languages. But when I have done that, people I've, so for example, I have translated whole radical compliance posts from English into Spanish and shown it to native Spanish speaking compliance officers who say the translation is good, but it does read like a computer translated it. It does not read like Matt Kelly's flair and personal style posts. So I, okay, that's fair. But then I also use ChatGPT this time around to translate some of my slides I had prepared, and I had some written remarks, and I ran them split screen between English and French on the slides I was showing to the French speakers. And I asked them, what do you think of ChatGPT's French translations? They said the exact same thing. They said, well, it's accurate. I know exactly what you mean. Although now that I see the English and the French next to each other, the French does look like a computer just translated the English. It's not quite how I, a French speaker, would translate it. And they also said, you know, and it certainly it doesn't read like what Matt Kelly would write normally when I'm writing in English. So it's the same thing that foreign language speakers are saying is that ChatGPT is good enough to convey meaning, but not necessarily exactly what you would use. 
My other big point when I spoke about AI to the Circle de la Compliance was that my pet peeve is there are too many things that we are shoving under the headline of AI. Is it just ChatGPT or is it sophisticated data analytics that we have been using for years? Is it something else? Is it both? Because if you are not precise in what you mean when you say artificial intelligence, you can't necessarily do an accurate risk assessment. The risks around using ChatGPT are very different than the risks around using robotic process automation or other advanced analytics that I would say, you know, they would count as AI, but they look and feel and interact with humans in a very different way than ChatGPT. Uh, but we're using AI to describe both of them. And I don't know that that's doing us justice. That was my big takeaway with AI. But largely, I still think it's going to be a long time before AI really threatens compliance officers' job security, for example. I think AI is going to make your job harder. And I think the same for corporate auditors and risk managers, so that we don't know what we're doing with AI yet. So let me now turn to DEI. And I was very intrigued, your prior remarks around DEI and whistleblowers. I think maybe you and I have explored that, but I was really interested of why or how you see this topic, which is incredibly divisive in the United States for a variety of unrelated reasons to whistleblowing, how DEI ties into that. And can we maybe change the discussion or do we have to just get rid of the acronym DEI and start talking about whistleblowing and trust? I think if you get rid of the DEI acronym, that's basically giving into the right wing crazies in the United States who use it basically to say minorities are getting a leg up on white people and that's wrong. First, I don't think that is true. But second, just because they believe that, that does not mean that that's what DEI is about, which it isn't, I don't think. But I would stress two big points for compliance officers. First one, I same I said at the beginning, is that DEI is really more about inclusion and diversity. And if you want a strong speak-up culture, every single person has to feel comfortable speaking up about what they see in their workforce. And if the workforce is sexist, if the workforce is racist, if the workforce is, you know, discriminatory in some other way, people are going to feel alienated and they won't speak up. Um, a good example of that would be the Activision Blizzard cases, where they had a long-running problem of sexist behavior in the workforce against female employees, who then, instead of speaking up to HR, because that seemed fruitless, um, they spoke out to California regulators, they spoke out to the media, and we had this huge expose about Activision, which the SEC then turned around and filed a disclosure violation with a $35 million fine against Activision under the you know, logic that if the company was saying that employee retention was important, but its culture was rife with sexism, that must mean that the company wasn't doing a good job understanding its culture and that you were disclosing that as a big risk and you had misunderstood it. So here's your fine. Maybe if Activision had been more inclusive in its management, 
there would have been female senior executives and board directors who would have said, this is a disaster. We need to fix this now. And maybe they could have prevented it. But the other point that I would make that I, I didn't really emphasize so much earlier was that diversity is not necessarily just about race or sex. Um, it is in the United States because we are a very racially diverse country. That's not the same for all countries. It's not racially diverse in Japan or China, where almost everybody is the same race. But you would have to think long and hard there about things like gender inclusion. I would suspect in India, you would think more about religious or caste inclusion. And like, Tim, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this as well. But diversity in Ukraine and Russia and that part of the world, I don't know how much it depends on race, but I'm sure everybody is well aware of who's Ukrainian, who's Kazakh, who's Armenian, who's Russian, you know, who speaks it, which languages, things like that. And there's it's much more cultural diversity, but I don't know that that would be the same as racial diversity where it is in the United States. So you need to think very broadly about what do you mean by diversity and inclusion and if you don't get that right, I still think you know, you're going to have trouble with your speak up culture. And then if you have trouble with that, like, what are we doing here, people? That's the basics. And so, Tim, that leads into the questions I wanted to pose and so kind of start off with with Matt, what Matt just ended with and then ask if you are seeing AI questions around AI between you and your colleagues as well. Yes, Tom, thanks. And I fully agree with Matt. What I have seen during a couple of last weeks, I have visited, I think, three or four compliance events across the Europe. It's a very big new thing. I fully agree with Matt that probably now we, doesn't, we don't know how to deploy this technology into our compliance work. Probably there will be a product designed by some compliance providers which will say yes. As of now, everybody is just looking with a certain level of curiosity on all these new things, trying to assess at what extent it will influence our work. At some extent, we also here in Europe view the whistleblower things. As Matt has said, we have the European directive based on which some countries already has adopted their own whistleblower laws, but the first thing that not all of them did that, and those who did that actually were also pioneers at some extent in their own countries with this type of legislation. What I have seen talking to my colleagues across the Europe, that it's still a new thing. And you know, Matt, Tom, what is big difference? And please let me know what you think. If we, with American school, look at the whistleblower or speak up, as part of, for example, hallmarks of the effective compliance program, meaning one of the instruments which you can use in order to report the violation. Here, what I have mentioned, and Matt just mentioned that, that European compliance people look at this as a very separate own area of law. So it's something like standing alongside whistleblower thing. So they not look like that, like as a protocol or mechanism of reporting things, but they look at it as a something really, really independent, which needs to be reviewed, analyzed, sometimes in connection or sometimes not in connection with other elements of the compliance program. So for me, it was a bit surprising 
thing which I have uh, noticed during my compliance practice in, in the EU. So, Tim, uh, first of all, Matt, the um, great state of Texas recently announced that Hispanics are the largest population racial group in the United States. So whites are now in the minority. Um, but, Tim, uh, Matt brings up a great point. So you're Ukrainian. You've worked in Russia. You've worked in emerging markets. How should an American or, or how should we think about diversity in a place like Russia, in a place like Eastern Europe, in some of the places you've worked where there may be a wide variety of, of different races, but they may look the same, they may speak rather similarly? How should an American think through diversity outside the United States? Tom, thanks. That's a very tricky question. And I can tell you even more. Originally, I'm from Uzbekistan, and I used to work in Kazakhstan, Russia, Ukraine, Germany. Uh, I got my law degree in the U.S., and maybe I forgot about some of the jurisdiction where I have practiced, and for last year in the Netherlands. And I can tell you that everywhere it's a big, big uh Big question. I think in Europe, we don't have such developed trends that we have in the US. Sometimes when I'm talking to compliance people, they refer to the American practices, to the new ethics, to something which is now we call here ESG in terms of, in terms of uh, avoiding inequality and all these things. But still, I can tell you some communities, some countries, some cultures are very traditional. They have their own history, the way on uh, how they view things. And sometimes it's difficult to promote the whistleblower possibility to raise these, for example, racial or discrimination questions because people do not know whether it will be a successful attempt. The second thing, we have whistleblower concept here in Europe as something really new, meaning not no, no proven track of fines, for example, which Matt, you have mentioned, or successful cases. Here, it's much more peaceful, and people avoid to raise this question. But I fully agree with Matt that we are just in the beginning. We will see, we will see the different situation tomorrow. Matt, can we turn now to the conference you're currently at? I think you said you were at the Internal Audit Conference, and I would to introduce this topic, Tim and I have done our last couple of Compliance Man Takes a Euro Trip podcast around the state of internal audit, the state of internal controls in um, in the EU. And it's been a fascinating exploration. We've seen some very sophisticated talent in terms of our podcast guests, but uh, perhaps more nascent starting or or a little bit behind uh, in the corporate world. What What are you observing from your conference this week? Well, there is a lot of discussion around ESG reporting, which in Europe they have, at this point, they have a battalion of acronyms right now, but there are the corporate sustainability disclosure requirements, which have been drafted and proposed, I think, but I think they have also been finalized. But that is then going to evolve into the European sustainability reporting standards and then more. Although one thing that struck me is that companies will need to start reporting on that in annual reports subject to EU regulation 
by the end of 2024 for reports coming out in early 2025. And if you are a large global organization, you have about 18 months to get all that in order. That's not much time if you are a large global corporation and you have not been paying attention to not just building an ESG program, but getting your hands on what are we actually going to put in a report? What is this data? How do we know it's reliable? An internal audit would play a big role in making sure your processes to collect and report that data are reliable. So there's an awful lot of discussion about corporate sustainability and reporting under the auspices of this is ESG. The other thing that they are talking about a lot actually is artificial intelligence. Uh, to come over to this podcast, which, of course, I am thrilled to be part of. I had to duck out early on a session that was all about how would you audit bias in an artificial intelligence program? And is there bias in the data? Is there bias in the algorithm? Is there bias in the humans using the AI to study the answers? Um, And that's not hypothetical anymore. In New York City, there is now a law that if you use AI as part of your hiring processes, and that includes something as simple as keyword matching on LinkedIn resumes that you're scraping, which I think every large company probably does, um, you have to audit once a year to be sure that your AI program you're using does not somehow subject to bias. Uh, So there's a lot of discussion there about how audit will also try to play a role in making sure you're using AI wisely. Uh, There's many other things on the agenda as well, so I can't get into them all, but I was struck by how you have this through line of sustainability reporting and AI and how audit can play a role in putting some structure and reliability around that. Those are big ideas on the agenda this year for the conference. Matt, do you get a sense that the EU practitioners, or rather the practitioners who live in the EU, understand they are leading... uh, the world's discussions around reporting because of the lack of, of any con- consensus in the United States at the federal or state levels that the, they are shouldering the responsibility for putting in systems or standards of reporting, or has that just not come up? I don't know, actually. That's a good question. I don't know if they are aware that they are setting the pace. I know that Americans are aware The EU is setting the pace because, Tom, as you rightly point out, we are still in this discombobulated mess in our country of different states supporting it, different states outlawing it, different federal agencies trying to nudge companies to greater sustainability practices, but not so much ESG reporting. And the SEC is trying to, but will probably be sued whenever they publish their climate reporting rule, which they haven't even done yet. Um, So I often think of ESG reporting the same way I think about data privacy, that the GDPR set the pace because America was not able to adopt a standard politically. We couldn't figure it out. So the EU came aside and they did it. And now the states within the United States are basically passing GDPR light laws. I would not be surprised if we see a similar sort of dynamic with ESG reporting that the EU is going to regulate it first, and then for lack of any other way to figure out what we should do in the United States, we're kind of sort of going to follow their lead at the federal level or maybe at the state level or certainly by investor groups pressuring American companies to make EU-level disclosures. But 
show me the world where the Americans get on the ball about what we want to do with ESG, because our political system is so dysfunctional, I don't see us doing it. So the EU wins by default. Tim, if I could maybe turn to you, how much of ESG is a part of your practice in compliance? Do you touch on it? Are you incorporated into it? Or is it really separate and distinct? Tom, yeah, I, I, I would say that it's a very hot topic. I fully agree with Matt that we are also trying to find out what will be the role of compliance practitioners in this area. And as Matt has said, we have very short deadlines, very tight deadlines here in Europe in terms of starting with reporting on ESG standards. They've been almost finalized 12 so-called ESRS standards, and one of them is specifically about compliance in the way how we know it. So it's about anti-corruption efforts, KPIs with regard to that. All of, A few of, out of those standards are about what we also can consider as compliance areas with regards to um, HR, equality, something that we also consider as compliance. Some uh, other standards are more about ecology. So having said that, compliance practitioners in the Europe, as I, as, as I see now, are trying to find out what will be their role in, in this framework, whether they will be just the guys who will be filling out templates you know, once a year with regards to compliance achievements, or it's going to be their active daily routine in terms of setting standards, in terms of having, for example, dialogues with the contractors, subcontractors about human rights and all the things. So now we are just trying to find out whether it will be a very formal approach or it's going to be a very practical, very life and very bold compliance effort. As I know big corporations now they'd be using as a homework, you know, the reports that they already did previously based on GRI standards or any other standards. So those are basically about green things. It was not much about so-called compliance area. So as I understand now, corporations are hiring those experts to help them in, in, in CSRD efforts as well. And what we've been promoting now, and Matt, which also should share with you, we do it with Tom, we are also engaging compliance people into this area. Because first of all, in these European standards, a lot of things have common roots with compliance practice. For example, in those standards, we are requested to set uh, KPIs, to make risk assessments, to have some organizational arrangements like creating committees, which are known for us as compliance practitioners. And we will see how it will go. I see there is a big interest from compliance people in, in the ESG, but the majority uh, of our compliance community acknowledge that officially during the conferences that there are not that many experts in this area so far. So, gents, we're running near the end of our time, but Matt, I wanted to ask you to have uh, any final thoughts on the compliance into the weeds report from Europe? Well, uh, other than, of course, just to thank the Circle de la Compliance for inviting me over to Paris, which was lovely. Um, you know, I, I suppose if I had any thoughts at all, it is that there really are still a lot of similarities between the European compliance community and the American compliance community in the challenges that we are having. There's 
a lot of uncertainty around ESG reporting. There is a lot of uncertainty around artificial intelligence. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and challenge around other things like third-party risk management and probably others that we're still looking to f- put some structure around how do we make these things that we want to achieve, good cybersecurity, good use of AI, good ESG reporting, how do we put structure around that to make it all sustainable? That's something that has been driving American compliance and audit professionals to distraction for a while. It is still very much the same over here in Europe, I think. And I will close on that positive note that we are still much more alike than we are different. Well, Tim, I wanted to uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. And I look forward to visiting again next week, Matt. Thank you, Matt. And I hope to see you somewhere very soon. All right. Welcome to the Netherlands. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. We've linked to Matt's blog posts on this topic in the show notes. I hope you will check out the blog post for more information. I also hope you will listen to some of the new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. We premiered a podcast uh, with Richard Blundell on sustainability, the business opportunity of the 21st century, Fox on podcasting, where I take a meta look at podcasting and compliance and AI. We are also developing some additional new shows, which will premiere in July. It's quite an exciting time on the Compliance Podcast Network. If you'd like to be a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, please give me a shout. I'm available at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.